0: Welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and joined by security practitioners Killian Englert, Chris Kaiser, and Mike Buckby. Summer is approaching, and of course, that's when we feel the most heat, especially Mike Buckby today. Meanwhile, for cybersecurity pros, it feels like summer all the time for them. They feel the heat all the time. They're sweating because their job is stressful, and it is often a source of of burnout, and there's a list of the 10 most stressful aspects of working in the cybersecurity space, and I'll list the top three. One is keeping up with the security needs of new IT initiatives. Number two, finding out about IT initiatives that were started by other teams. And number three, trying to get end users to understand cybersecurity risks and to change their behavior. Which one do you want to highlight in order to bring more awareness to the this plight of cybersecurity pros.
1: This is Chris. I'll go first. It's funny though. There's one in here that we're probably going to talk about later as well, but it's trying to get end users to understand cybersecurity risks and change their behavior accordingly. Changing human behavior is really hard. Trying to get people to learn is is hard enough. Having them actually ingest that information and then make changes in how they operate is, is real hard. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we've seen in past episodes is kind of the battle between what's convenient to do, what's easy to do, what's going to make the business move faster and what is actually secure or what is the right move to make in terms of improving security. I think it's sort of a battle back and forth, getting the entities to actually understand why you're asking for this thing that they don't comprehend as being an issue or they don't they don't see why you need what you need from them. And it does kind of come down to just the fact that a lot of time people who are in cybersecurity have an understanding of the risks, have an understanding of why these changes need to be made in, in, in a level that you know, somebody who has none of that experience can even start to fathom. So it's, it's, it's almost like you're an educator at the same time. I think that's probably one of the most stressful aspects for sure.
2: Hi, this is Ken. I just want to comment. Mike's probably just sweating because this is like the third time he's had to talk to me this week. And he was trying to slide into the weekend. Sorry, Mike. One more. One more time. <laughs> <laughs> I would go with, from this list, finding out about IT initiatives or projects that were started by other teams with uh, no security oversight. I can't tell you how many times I've run across this in my professional career where something starts off another team, hey, we have a great initiative. And they maybe this goes to Chris's point. And the third point is they just don't think about it. And then the project gets so far and then finally somebody catches wind, it becomes a fire drill at that point to try and bolt on security to a process that could have had it built in. That's definitely, from a, a cybersecurity perspective, incredibly stressful because the other team often has deadlines and priorities to you know launch whatever it is or meet the objectives and cybersecurity ends up getting kind of called uh, you know blockers on this because they're trying to help implement things the right way and it just looks like a, a burden. And a little bit further down the list, they also mention overwhelming workload and I think everybody listening and everybody in cybersecurity can probably attest to that. Is kind of connected to the top one. Keeping up with new security initiatives and what's going on in the industry, it never changes. Trying to constantly stay on top of it, trying to balance the workload, trying to balance the educational needs to stay up to date and current, it can be tough. It's like trying to uh, build a house next to a boat going down a river. It sometimes feels like it's in vain and you never really kind of get where you want to be.
3: Yeah, this is Mike. I I think it's all of these together all the time. There's a multiplicative quality to this where you can imagine taking any two of these different you know, top tens and mixing them together and getting a more potent and frightening version of things to be worried about. And so, you know, I, I agree with everything that's been said so far. And I just think it is that we've become more and more reliant on more and more online systems We're more and more have surface area to worry about in the security world
2: mike you're agreeing with me a lot lately too on a couple of these is that why you're sweating here you're realizing that we're winning you over exactly give in to the collective
3: i'm just generally uncomfortable. my kids stole my standing mat as well to put at the bottom of their water slide so this has not been my day it's like 80 degrees here and i'm dying
2: could have had pool podcast could have brought your standing <laughs> desk out stood in the uh in the pool put the microphone on the side missed opportunity man
0: I want to focus on one of the burnout stats where it's extremely difficult to get end users to understand their risks and to change their behavior. Managing director of security awareness, wrote a really practical Forbes article on the difference between sharing information and changing behavior. And a huge complaint is that many purchased cybersecurity awareness training, but for some reason, they've realized it actually doesn't really work. Sure, the training was filled with informative content from leaders in the industry and the employees, they were tested and they were given certifications but they still ended up clicking on links they shouldn't be clicking on. And so the certification proves that the user knew enough of the information to pass the test, but it doesn't mean anything if it doesn't change someone's behavior. And so the managing director of security awareness had a great formula that if you include the why, what, and how, it will eventually result in a changed behavior. And this really reminded me of what a chief data officer said once at a conference I attended and he says, well, every single day you learn something new and interesting if it doesn't change your behavior. It doesn't matter how interesting something is. And it's been a while since we've talked about training users and why users may or may not be the enemy. Any new evolved thoughts on this matter?
2: Absolutely love this article. And it is almost so obvious it's silly, but it's really powerful. And this is something that I've had a personal crusade. Stayed on for a while now, and I'm sure anybody listening internally at, at Veronis, Chris, you might have been on the receiving end of one of these emails. Is whenever I get asked a question, my initial response is always like, "Well, why does it matter? Who cares about this? Right? If we do X, Y, or Z, if we get whoever the information, when you know what are they going to do with it? You know, why is this important to them? And that applies to again everything from from selling to general technology to cybersecurity. And I think it's just a really powerful concept if they can kind of really think about it and say, "Oh, why is this important? Why is this important to my customers?" Or Successful project, or whatever it happens to be, or cybersecurity in general, we tend to see that light bulb go off in a lot of ways. Go, oh, you know, I've never thought of this concept in that way, why it's important, as opposed to, you know, having the information to have the information.
1: Sure, yeah, I'll I'll agree with that. One of the things that kind of stands out here is, you know, I think the way that humans learn is is not by reading an article and taking a test and moving on with it. It's that in order to build out a behavior, you kind of have to build good habits. And that's not something that a certification will necessarily address. You know, you may go in, pass that test to flying colors and then it reminds me of college where you would study really hard for a short amount of time and then that information's gone you know a week a month later a years later there's certain things that were you know learned and then discarded with the aim of you know getting through the certification or getting through this one moment whereas really what should have been done is is involving this in your day-to-day involving this in a regular habit regular process something that sticks with you as opposed to you yeah, pass this test and that proves that you're going to be you know uh, an excellent user, uh, an ideal end user. It doesn't always work out that way. I think people learn differently than that. And I think it takes a little more reinforcement, repetition. It takes a little more effort. And I I agree that focusing on the how, the why, that sort of stuff makes it stick a little better. But I think reminding people of the how and the why and and kind of putting it in their face of, we're giving them a reminder of like, hey, here's a story about what happened to X company. Somebody did exactly what you're about to do. And this is what happened to them. You know, somebody clicked on a bad link and this company lost X million dollars. Just as a reminder, these are the possible repercussions of, you know, not thinking things through before you do them or clicking willy nilly on the internet and, and going after stuff you're not sure is secure. I think that that's a much better method than just a one time, you know, take it and pass kind of course.
2: I mean, to extend from that too is if we can, with that why, if we can connect it to personal value, that tends to stick a lot easier for people as well too. It's not an abstract concept like, hey, this will be great for the company or this will really help cybersecurity. If we can make, if we can connect that personal value of the person for whatever it is. As we're trying to communicate. That's kind of self-reinforcing where they can kind of see how it's going to help them or benefit them personally, as opposed to, again, that abstract concept
1: Sure. I mean, I keep hearing about these systems that people use to stick to their habits or, you know, they're trying to lose weight or they're trying to earn a skill. And there's actually a concept where if there's a chance that you're going to lose something, if you don't abide by the rules, you're far more likely to stick to it. So for instance, those people who have like, there's a website you can go to, I forget the name off the top of my head, but you can basically put a bet on there saying, Hey, if I don't, I don't know, go to the gym three times this week, it's going to automatically send money to a charity that I despise, or it's going to put me Blast on the internet or something like that. So I think this is, there's more to it than just take a test. It's got to be some sort of intrinsic motivation, like, like you were saying.
2: It's, and we'll cut off Mike once again. I see him moving around, but it's um, kind of funny. A couple weeks ago, I watched a clip on YouTube of Arnold Schwarzenegger, of all people, talking about kind of how he came up in the bodybuilding world and how he had to set those goals for himself to just push harder to set the goal. And he said he could never work out without setting that goal for himself, or he wasn't as effective because he didn't have that personal value, to push and do that one more rep, to go one more day, to do one more hour at the gym, you know, and it was, it was always working towards that goal and again, connecting with that personal value and the why he's doing it, you know, Hey, he wants to get this movie role. He wants to win this title. And that really helps get people motivated to again, adapt and change their behavior.
3: All right, I'm gonna go, which is, <laughs> you know, I, I thought, Chris, you said something really interesting, which is about like bringing it down to the personal level instead of the sort of corporate level. Or maybe that was killing anyone. You know. But either way, I, I agree with that thought. And I was actually trying to think about this in terms of, you know, something that's a very common now is to run fake phishing stuff. So everyone in the company gets this fake phishing email and they see like who clicks on it and who doesn't. But if that was tied into the same sort of like, you know, sense of psychological loss and a more personal stake in this, I wonder if those would work better if it was structured instead, like, hey, we're gonna give everyone a twenty-five dollar Starbucks gift card or whatever it is at the end of the quarter, but you know, on the condition of you can't get tricked by any of these emails and, you know, the that goes out, if that would be more effective overall than the current sort of, I want to say that almost naggy sense of of this from the the cybersecurity side.
0: So even though it's difficult to change a user's habits and change is always happening, the world keeps moving, businesses continue to advance, and today we're looking at a 23andMe collaboration with Airbnb. And so for me, it's the strangest business deal because I would never put together the concept of heritage travel where people pilgrimage uncover their family histories in their former familial homes and cities and countries. And I love the idea of this. I believe in exploring your own roots. I believe in traveling outside the States. But once they see how they, as in companies in general, see how connecting two unlikely industries or companies together, they might be inspired to connect Two unlikely data points, and I worry about the mishmash of sharing data with people you shouldn't be sharing with, and you know that's how you end up profiling people. What were your reactions to this new business collaboration? Good or bad? I
1: I get it. Like I get why this would be something that they would want to do. I understand that there is definitely a market for connecting people who have a certain genetic background or, or you know, lineage with uh, being able to go back and visit the homeland, so to speak. I totally get. That. I mean I've been back to Germany. I've been to a bunch of, you know, countries where my family have, you know, some connection to. Definitely a little bit nervous about how this data can be extrapolated and used in ways we're not thinking of. I just I don't know whether the Airbnb hosts are aware of this and whether it's going to affect whether they can accept or or deny certain people on the basis of how they're signing up and why they're signing up and what program they're signing up through because that basically translates to who that person is and what their background is and what their their lineage is. It seems a little weird. I am not sure whether I'd voluntarily tell 23andMe to connect to Airbnb for this. It, it makes me a little uncomfortable.
3: Well, it's really unclear exactly what this is. Like, There's a spectrum of data sharing here. I mean, on the one sure. side, it can be Airbnb now has you know full access to make clones of my body and send me out on trips as they would wish. And the other end is it's they literally got a list of uh, countries that my ancestors happened to live in per their test. And my, my one thought about this is, this is like the most boring cyber tech future that we've ever could have imagined where you know now we have like crazy genetic testing and you know, this distributed technology and all of it and we're using it to decide like where to go on for vacation which is makes me slightly disappointed in humans but i guess on the other side it just doesn't seem that much different than like the article even mentions, just like sort of looking up your ancestry from your family tree and then going to those places i'm more i'm more interested in like where this ends is are we just going to go around to restaurants and like you know hey i want a smoothie and they're like oh give me your put a a drop of blood here and we'll tell you the best tasting smoothie for you to get like is that where is that where our future is mike
2: i love your your picture of dystopian society in the future the most <laughs> kind of banal boring this is less gattaca and more kind of peeking in in the middle
3: 23 and me said my favorite color is beige and i should just do everything that way so who wanted to argue
2: yeah i can see that mike just don't argue with it do what You know, 23andMe says, it's okay. I have no real feelings or thoughts on this. I mean, it kind of almost is, from a marketing perspective, it makes sense. I find kind of the heritage pilgrimage interesting. I mean, I think it's important for people to connect to their roots. I don't like the genetic testing. I think there's far too much risk for misuse of that data, even to tell Mike that he prefers beige walls in his house.
3: Well, I think where this breaks down is that, you know, in the same way that I roll my eyes a lot at things that, I think the term AI is slapped onto tons and tons. of different companies and services now when it doesn't really make sense when it's just like, yeah, we use basic statistics to find a house that's in your price range in your area. You know, that's way less marketing exciting. And I think it's the same thing here. I don't think there's actually anything that's, you know, particularly egregious in what this 23andMe and Airbnb partnership is. And the, the real angle here is that it has become a sort of shorthand for truth and for how that it is like a deeper sense of you than you even know when there's still lots of issues with the underlying science of 23andMe. If you take some of these different tests from different places, you end up with different results in some cases. So it's not destiny. And I just in the same way that we want people to be educated consumers of cybersecurity things, we want them to be educated consumers of genetic stuff. And it more seems gimmicky to me in that respect than anything else.
2: But you know what? Don't be trash talking AI. My water bottle here has some AI built in <laughs> that tells me at what time of the day I should be drinking a certain amount of water because there's little lines on it and numbers. So, you know, Pretty this good. is like next gen water bottle here with AI. I like it.
0: So a more realistic example of concern that I do have are cars. So today, cars know how much we weigh, cars track how much weight we gain, they know how fast we drive, where we live, how many children we have, they know who we're going to call and who we text, and so this new car knows a lot of information about who we are as people and and I do think drivers and businesses love the advancements of how we've developed our cars to be but a concern is that car owners don't get the opportunity to control what happens to their data then as a result the car manufacturers potentially can find a way to monetize off of the car owners data and it's you know, really a story about data ownership, privacy, business models. What are your thoughts regarding these concerns?
2: Well, I'm just a little bit disappointed that my car is going to judge me, you know, when I stop and pick up some fast food. But other than that, I think this goes to a lot of kind of core problems that we face now with the amount of data that we generate literally everywhere we go. The article talked about, you know, like our cell phones and some of the kind of known quantities there, the location data, some of the voice data with the built-in assistance and the Google and Alexa and all those. But I think the scariest thing is that people don't think that cars are tracking this much. And as the article alluded to, I mean, they're literally any more um, computers on wheels with so much telemetrics that they can provide and with no control over, I mean, where it goes or who gets it. Not that we're not all being lawned, you know, driving the speed limit and things like that. But this is just one more source of information to feed into the ever-growing profile of us at insurance companies or whoever else has. And I think the implications are, I'd say, dire, honestly. You know, I don't need uh, my car ratting on me that I went and get some Fast food here now. My insurance premium is going to go up because you know I'm not living a healthy lifestyle. I I think it's just ripe for abuse, and people don't realize it. But then again, who am I to talk? My car's from 2002. It barely has any computers. It has an engine, though.
3: Yeah, in the same sort of way, there is a misattribution of the genetic aspect of 23andMe and Airbnb. I I kind of feel like there's a misattribution of cars and technology here, where it's more corporations. And it just happens that cars are picking up on some of this information. But it's really, you know, this corporate sense of, like, what to do with data. And something we've talked a lot about is how, even the last, you know, five years, we've really seen a shift where especially biometric data is considered to be more of a toxic asset than something that is really worthwhile. And things like GDPR and the upcoming California Consumer Privacy Act really are pushing companies and organizations to think about what data they collect and to be more thoughtful about it instead of just collecting everything. Where, again, it seems kind of like a gimmick that like, oh, the car knows how much you weigh. But we're at the point where, you know, if you walk into a store and they have a security camera, they could probably figure out how much you weigh based on your height, some guessing. What does that actually mean? Where does that go? What do they deal with it. And, you know, GDPR would have, you know, all of that disclosed and you were able to find that out. And that, to me, seems like the way forward for all of this. Not that the car is spying on you, but that there's some generally useful thing in it.
2: Well, I think I, I think that's kind of, again, I'll agree with Mike, this is a shocking episode. But the thing that bothers me is that there's no oversight on it. And I guess it's reassuring in some way with GDPR, with CCPA, and hopefully other state laws and federal laws eventually, will put some of that control back. I mean, I think it's almost, it goes without saying that um, the companies collecting this data will find some way to monetize it. I mean, they have it, so might as well get something out of it. And it might not necessarily be malicious. My mind always just goes there, but consumers need to be in control of their data. And I think that's what we're missing in a lot of these.
3: Well, like in the case of the cars and like, is this malicious or not? I mean, my first thought about why it's collected is for the enabling or disabling of front passenger side airbags, where like that's, that's a thing where if you have kids that are under a certain weight and things, they aren't supposed to be in the front. And there's a whole thing, you know, in modern cars where it goes through where there's a sensor that checks for like, is is it over 60 pounds in the seat? Because that's a thing. So there's, there's a legitimate reason for that. I don't know if it needs to be stored forever and all of that I think should be disclosed. But in the scheme of things, I feel like there's there's worse stuff that can
2: happen. Oh, yeah. The, of course, there's worse stuff that can happen. But as you mentioned, our kind of tendency towards collect and store forever is, is what gets us into trouble. As soon as you start having that data, people look at ways to do something else with it than the initial intention.
0: Chris and I don't drive. This is true. (laughs) But to tie this week's theme and our last podcast together is what really seems to be emerging is that we're playing a game of whack-a-mole. We invent a new technology or we have a new security technology that's supposed to help us, then the cyber criminals are right there with us. And no wonder our cybersecurity pros are burnt out and the city of Baltimore. They're facing a tough two weeks where they're forced to pay a $100,000 ransom. And I remember one year where all I wrote was about ransomware. And ransomware isn't anything new, but we're still figuring out how to deal with them. And it makes me wonder if we can't even get the basics right, how can we proceed from a business perspective when we can't figure out the security or privacy aspect?
3: So, Cindy, your question was. How can it's almost like a hierarchy of what to deal with first? Is that right? Yeah. And I don't think you can separate them. It would be my thought, which is that, you know, if you don't in terms of, you know, data, if you don't have the data, you need to do less with securing it. And, you know, that takes down the overall risk that it's this equation of like how how much data is out there? How is it valuable? Is it not valuable? And then how accessible is it? through nefarious means through it that attackers can get to it. And all of those need to be tackled together in different chunks to bring down your overall risk profile. So in the case of Baltimore, where they've had ransomware messing up tons of their systems for several weeks, and it's unclear even if they pay that they'll get it back. There's chunks of that uh, that they can do better with, obviously, but parts of it are still, they have systems that are online that are, you know, down. Would you recommend they pay this if you're working, if you were the chief of IT for uh, Baltimore?
1: I mean, you have to calculate, like, what's going to be lost in terms of inability to actually do their job. Jobs and have access to that information versus you know, the cost that they're they're asking for. So they're looking for what, a hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, but you know, they're saying this is this is tying up two weeks of parking tickets. Yeah, two <sighs> weeks. Yeah. So city employees have been out of their email, they can't get their email. Citizens can't access essential services, so they can't they can't pay their water bill, they can't pay their property taxes, they can't pay parking tickets. I mean, I wonder what they're losing in terms of parking ticket revenue alone in the last two weeks. I mean, that's probably a significant amount of money. And apparently, yeah, this is their second ransomware attack in about Fifteen months. So this is something that you know they've gone through before. I, I wonder what their their reaction to it was. You know, what, what did they do after the first one to to try and prevent this from happening again? Uh, this is not like a blaming thing. I just you know it's it's twice in fifteen months. It seems like it's they're they're definitely a big target for people if this is happening so frequently.
2: I mean, back to kind of Cindy's point too. This is a, almost a, a never-ending arms race. Is that the attackers and defenders will always just build up more, and it's almost offering platitudes at this point, but. This strikes me as something that, you know, we talk about it a lot, but defense in depth you know, the the parking ticket system, the real estate transaction system, the email, things like that. It would strike me that, you know, if we could get these on like separate networks, for example, and and kind of control the damage if one system goes down, try and at least quarantine to that point. You know, multiple levels of detection throughout the organization as things kind of cross those network boundaries as they affect different servers. I'm monitoring that type of information. We talked about employees are going to click silly emails and get themselves infected. It's... I mean, it's just a way of life, and there has to be a plan in place for it. I- Again, I don't know anything about the, the details here, but, and, you know, maybe giving them the benefit of the doubt, maybe this just happened slightly too quickly before they could implement their plans from the last time. Who can say? But I feel like there's a lot of case studies I'm using in, in a kind of more broad sense, like with Atlanta, who went through this last year, or was it, or two years ago, had a very similar situation with ransomware. There's lessons that we could learn from others in the industry. And I think maybe the biggest takeaway is just, hey, we have to learn from each other. The bad guys are all out there. They only need to find one weakness. We have to try and protect all aspects. And, you know, we're, we're going to get hit, we're going to get compromised, but we need to learn those lessons um, from either ourselves or from others in the industry.
3: You know, Cindy, you started this by saying like, oh, which of these things, you know, stress you out? And to me, this is one, which is that, you know, attackers only need to be successful once to, you know, destroy this network. And you have to be right all the time. You have to have everything locked down in every single respect and everything split up. And if you mess up, it's incredibly public. So yeah, my heart goes out to the IT folks there.
0: Definitely. Do we have a tool of the week?
3: Yes. And if you wanted to break into a municipality uh, and mess up their ticket payment and tax payment systems that were online, you might use a tool like Trace which lets you do some basic reconnaissance of websites. And the H stands for HTTP. So this is a neat shell script that wraps up a number of other tools for doing some nice initial reconnaissance of a website to see things like are they doing a reverse proxy, trying to bypass like a varnish cache, trying to follow redirects to see, you know, are they open? Can they be manipulated for other purposes? And I have a fondness for any tool that's uh, just a shell script and not, you know, a whole separate Python package or executable. Um, so yes, it is Trace and it's on GitHub and we'll put a link in the show notes.
2: With that glowing endorsement there, Mike, we should probably say that uh, we don't endorse doing this on any systems that you don't own or have authorization to uh, run this again I
3: thought that was implied. So, but yes,
1: that's a good
0: plan. Thanks to Mike Buckby, Killian Engler, Chris Kaiser, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to it, share it, or write a review. That would really help us out. Thanks so much.
2: Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys.